Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and that's on page 983 in your Bibles, if you'd like to follow along, page 983. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The word of the Lord. All right, we were turning to this scripture here that was just read in the book of Colossians. Uh, Before I begin, let me just say, though the plan is uh, for me to be here only a few months, I want you to know that I'm, I'm here with all my heart. And if there is any way that I can help you, I want to help anyone and everyone here in any way that I can. Uh, If you're going through something, a particular trial or whatever, and you'd like me to pray with you and for you after the service, please come up and ask. 
Uh, if you have a question uh, of any kind, I, I'm, uh, I've been countered on this, but I subscribe to the theory there's no such thing as a bad question. Uh, that, that questions are good and they, they help us clarify things. But if you have a question, please don't hesitate to come and ask. If I don't know the answer, I'll tell you very plainly, and uh, you know, then we can maybe research it and reconvene after we've looked at it again together. Um, but any other ways that you can think of that I can be of any help to you, I'm very willing to, to try to do that. So please know that. All right, so we are beginning a series this morning in this book of Colossians. Um, this is one of the prison epistles. So the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle from prison. And part of the occasion for the epistle was Paul addressing attacks against a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he did to redeem us. But because that's what he's dealing with, we're going to find in this book of Colossians are some of the deepest and most far-reaching statements about who the Lord Jesus Christ is and especially about how that applies to us, how we live and interact with that truth. So I'm going to read verse 18 again and then pray briefly and we'll launch in. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Let's pray. Father, we are asking now um, and acknowledging that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. That, Lord, the thing you most powerfully use in our hearts is this word, Father, where the Lord Jesus Christ is, is brought to us as it were in, in technicolor, um, because he is painted here in this book. And so we ask you, Lord, that you will today pour out your spirit upon us. And Lord, that each one of us will hear from you. We ask that you will give us grace to listen, not for others, but for ourselves. And this day to hear your word. And this day, O oh Lord, to make it impossible, we pray, for us to leave the same as we came in. Let us know your transforming work through your word today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, let's begin our study of this book by understanding the context. What is it that's going on in Colossae, and why, therefore, does Paul need to write and address it? And Colossae was a city in what was called then Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. The significant thing about this city is that it was located on a very important trade route. Now, a trade route back then was a big deal because trade routes, you had people constantly traveling back and forth. This was a trade route, particularly from the east. And so, you know, people are traveling back and forth, uh, and so they're in and out. And so people in Colossae were crossing paths with a lot of different people, uh, different nationalities, different languages passing through. Now, what's significant about that is they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have newspapers. This was the most frequent means for people to get news of what's going on in the world, for them to share ideas, for them to wrestle over things together. That happened uh, as a result of the interactions that they would have on these trade routes. 
Now, from what we can tell, this church here in Colossae, Paul didn't actually uh, start this church. It's more likely that he had preached in Ephesus not far away and that one of the converts had come and started the church here. Uh, from various things that are said in the, the epistle, Epaphras, who is mentioned at the beginning and is mentioned at the end, he's probably the most likely candidate. But Paul has not been here yet, and that, that's going to have some significance uh, in some of the things that we're going to study here in a little while. But anyway, it was from Epaphras that Paul has learned the state of things in Colossae. For you see, apparently, all those ideas and beliefs passing through and people sharing these things uh, that, that they talked about from one another had led to false teaching creeping into the Colossian church. Now, nobody knows the precise nature of the heresy that was involved here. But from what the Apostle Paul addresses in the book, we can see three things pretty clearly. One, there was Jewish legalism. Paul deals with that a lot in the book of Galatians, but also in this book. Then there was Greek philosophical speculation, and the Greeks were known for just loving to, you know, to dabble in philosophy and to speculate about various things. And then there was Oriental mysticism. And so if you add those three things together, it becomes a pretty deadly combination when it obscures the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, obscuring the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the top of the devil's to-do list. It's one of his chief goals. He wants you to think him anything other than who he truly is. He's always trying to subvert your understanding, keeping Jesus at arm's length because you're not quite sure you can trust him. That's always part of his agenda. And if I had time this morning, I could really produce an abundance of evidence that legalism, philosophical speculation, mysticism, they are all alive and well in our world. Uh, you know, anymore, you can find it all on the Internet. And, but it is, uh, these, these things are alive and well. And so God, the Holy Spirit, inspires Paul, the apostle, to write a book to show us in mind, heart, and life what we read earlier, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. And that's the theme of this book, the preeminence of Christ. I've called the series itself all about him, the preeminence of Christ in mind, heart, and life. And this is a, it's a very straightforward epistle, like most of Paul's epistles, epistles. It, you can just divide it right into half. It's half doctrine and half practice or application of that doctrine on our lives. Now, uh, don't be scared or even worse, bored by the world, word doctrine. I know many consider that to be absolutely deadly. It just means teaching. That's all it is. It just means teaching, and it's simply the truth about who your Savior is, what he has done for you, and what he is doing for you. And as a result of that, who you are in him. What are the rights and privileges of the sons of God? Have it, it in a sense, sets before us King of kings and Lord of lords. He's ours. He's our king. He's our bridegroom, our friend, our prophet, priest, and king. He's everything to us. 
But have we entered into that? Are we living in that? Are we experiencing that? And so this particular book um, lays a foundation for who Christ is and then in every different way begins to apply that, to press that to our hearts, to, have, to move us into living in that way. I think it's true to say that most of the sins and follies of our lives trace directly back to not knowing all Jesus is to us. We're not knowing um, who we are in him, or at least not walking in that. It's a big deal in our Christian life. So this book, half doctrine, half practice, falls into a really pretty simple and straightforward outline. There's an introduction, the first 12 verses, and that's what we're going to cover today. And then the first half is the preeminence of Christ in Christian doctrine. That'll be the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2. And then the preeminence of Christ in Christian life. That'll be chapter 3, the first six verses of chapter 4. And then there's a conclusion in the last verses of chapter 4. So today we're going to cover that introduction. It's the first 12 verses, which is a, a pretty good chunk But let me say there are going to be times as we go through this series where we're going to slow down a bit and examine smaller portions of the epistle just because of how important they are and how much we need to understand their key nature. The introductory verses that we're going to look at today break down into pretty straightforward sections. Um, He begins with an opening salutation as anyone would, and then thanksgiving to God for what Paul had heard about the Colossians, and then what he is is specifically praying for them. Each of those three things is pretty instructive, and so I want to think about these three sections under just three words, greeting, grace, and goal, which I trust will make sense as we move along. So let's begin with the greeting portion of it. And if you'll look again at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, you know, I didn't call myself to this. God called me to this. And one of the reasons he's doing that is because that establishes his authority. And that's going to be important when he starts dealing with some of the things he's going to address later in the book. So he has God's authority and is speaking by the Holy Spirit with God's authority. But then in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty common greeting for the Apostle Paul. Almost every single one of his epistles begins exactly the same way, grace and peace. And because it's so frequent, it'd be very easy to just skate right over it. But this is powerful. It's important. It's, it's why it is a beginning place is because the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us into a standing of accomplished grace and peace. 
grace and peace that is ours, not because we've earned it somehow, not because we've learned, you know, some some good psychological keys for stepping into them. No, it's because Jesus Christ purchased these things and is committed to sending his spirit, making his spirit, moving his spirit to apply it to every single one of our lives. What is grace? Well, it's the favor of God, but it's also the working of God. You may remember the Apostle Paul uh, talking about his ministry and saying, I labored more abundantly than all the others. And he says, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. In other words, the Apostle Paul said, God gave grace that did the work. God gave grace that mightily influenced. So it's, it's the favor of God, but it's also the working of God on our behalf. And again, to take all that the New Testament says about that grace, it takes care of everything we will ever face. There is grace, and and in most cases, very specific promises of grace for every kind of need we're ever going to face. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, you remember, is praying about his thorn in the flesh. Um, and you remember the Lord Jesus answers him. It's uh, interesting if you've got a red letter Bible, you have all the red letters in the Gospels, and then you come to 2 Corinthians 12, and there are these red letters where the Lord Jesus is answering the Apostle Paul, and what does he say to him? What's his answer? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. And folks, you and I, we're never going to face anything for which we do not have the right to say that sentence belongs to us as well. His grace is sufficient for us. If we'll only enter in and only understand. My grace is sufficient for you is the answer of the Lord Jesus. But it's not just grace, it's peace. So what is peace? It's the absence of conflict. Now, that takes a lot of different forms. It can have an external form. It can have an internal form. Um, But peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is what the gospel gives us. That's what Romans 5 tells us. The peace is ours because Jesus Christ purchased it. He earned it. And that really brings something pretty significant to the attention of the Colossians, but to, to us as well. The Lord purchased that peace for us that we might live there, that we might appropriate what Christ purchased, that that is a purchased peace. And again, if we're not walking in that peace, one of two things has to be true. Either we are not believing what is true about what Jesus Christ has done for us, about who we are in him, or we are believing what is not true. The lies, insinuations of the devil that seek to undermine our confidence in God. Peace is ours. And oh, let's be a people who who don't surrender our peace. Who are not willing to just say, well, you know, this is a rough week. And leave it at that. But to say, no, my Lord has said peace is mine. Lord, let me stay here in your presence and and seal that peace to my heart. Show me what it is that's undermining that peace. Show me what I'm not believing that I need to believe or what I am believing that I ought not to believe. Lord, meet me here and be my peace. If you know and believe the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did for you and who you are in him, 
Grace and peace is yours. It's yours forever. And it's ours to step into. Well, let's move then to the second section. And this is the section that I called grace. It's the section of thanksgiving. It's just where he has heard certain things from Epaphras. And so he's just listing off all the things that he's thankful for as they were reported by Epaphras. But he says some pretty important things here. So let's read, first of all, just verses 3 and 4. I'm just going to go slowly through the various things that he's thankful for and just notice what we need to. Verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. So here is this thankfulness, thankfulness to the Father for everything that he has done. Um, He is listing all these things that are evidences of God's grace in the Colossian people. And he begins first with their faith in Christ, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for time and for eternity. You are owning him as your savior, owning him as the one who makes all the difference in your life. But then in verse 4, he goes on to, and your love for all the saints. He's taking that as a great evidence of the grace of God among those people. And, well, he should, right? Didn't the Lord Jesus say, my people will be known by their love one for another? That's how you'll know that they are my people. By the love that they bear one toward another. This is an evidence. And this is the evidence that um, we can always improve. Always improve. I love the word intentional because I don't think I lived it much for a long, long time. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, just, just and it's been a joke in our home, you know, the whole idea of, of look, I, I told you I love you. You know, if that changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, that does not fly. It never flies. And um, so... The real expression of love isn't at heart just a sentiment. It's a sentiment that moves. Love is a verb. Love acts. Love does things. And and we are all across the New Testament. We keep getting these things of entering into others' difficulties, of of bearing one another's burdens, of, of opening our eyes and look not every man on his own things, but also on the things of others. In other words, we're bid again and again and again, your brother and your sister, they need you. They need you. You know, the interesting thing about that is you will find your own heart lifted and encouraged When you do look at others, when you do move to help them and encourage them. Um, Some of you, I'm dating myself here. I've already said I'm 90. Um, But there used to be a psychologist, popular psychologist, Leo Buscaglia. And uh, Flavor of the Month, you know, he's very, very popular for a while. And everybody wanted to read his books and listen to him. And... um, But he was a very straightforward guy, and so people would come to him and just utter crippling depression, and he would say, okay, I can can deal with this. I'm going to write you a prescription, 
And what he would write on the prescription is, I want you to go to the children's ward of the, the cancer hospital. I want you to go to that, that hallway, and I want you to just go visit those people. Just go visit them. You know, just, just so, show some love and concern. And he said again and again and again, people would come back and say, I don't have any problems, you know. Just uh, the depression would be gone because they had been given grace through that opportunity to step outside themselves and love somebody else. And in doing it, they loved themselves much better than they had been. And so again and again, we are bid to be intentional and to love one another for Christ's sake. Verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So there's a hope in heaven. The word hope in the New Testament has the idea of expectation. It is far more than just kind of a vain wish. It has the idea of expectation. And that makes great sense. In the book of Ephesians, we're told our citizenship is already in heaven. In the book of Hebrews, we are told our identity is already there. In other words, in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, you are come to Mount Zion. You are come there. You belong there. That's your place of belonging. You're not home yet, but you have a home. It's there, and it's your heavenly inheritance. And then here in Colossians, it's actually going to deal uh, a few times with the whole idea of inheritance, that your inheritance is there. So as, as the Lord Jesus taught this life, this is the worst you'll ever know. This is the worst you'll ever know. And you're just passing through. You're passing through to the place that he has prepared for his people, a place where the outpouring of his love will be so powerful and real. You have a home in heaven, and the Lord says, I will be with you every step of the way till you are safely there. Now, notice that um, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing hope here especially, and, and that's pretty significant because suffering and intense opposition abounded. Uh, and that's, I think, proved by the fact that Paul's writing from Roman prison, and a Roman prison he's not going to leave until he's died. So, yes, there are plenty, plenty of, of um, there's suffering, there's opposition, there's, there was a lot. And, and, and in this context, he talks to the Colossians uh, about hope. And I think that's important for us to just step back and, and to think about for a few minutes. Because, yeah, death, imprisonment, that certainly is a form of suffering. But so are difficult relationships. So is depression. So is severe financial trials and, and difficulties. And I would encourage you, don't ever downplay your particular trial and whatever kind of difficulty it is causing you. Because the suffering, the suffering of that, of whatever kind it is, it's real. It's real. However, just as we acknowledge that and transparently bring that before the Lord, then we acknowledge we have a book full of promises that his grace will be sufficient for that specific need. I know sometimes, and I've, I've been guilty of saying it myself, uh, we have an expression, sometimes we could have real problems. You know, you've got some 
irritating little thing that's bothering you, a physical hang-up, you know, it might be anything. And, and you know people who are going through so much deeper, more difficult trials. And so we'll say, um, you know, I could have real problems. Well, my wife rebuked me on that score the other day uh, and said, don't say that, you know. Remember, you know, your suffering is just as real. The grace of Christ for your suffering is just as real. You know, don't, don't downplay it and therefore not get the help and the blessing and the grace that the Lord intends you to have. Um, I mentioned many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's a great, great comfort to me, that passage. And there are many others where the Lord just promises delivering us in our trials and difficulties. But one of them that I was thinking about this week, and it's funny because this this passage I turn to in many, many cases after listening to or or watching the news. Uh, It drives me to this passage. But David, at the end of Psalm 27, is expressing his hope. And in the last two verses, David says this, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That's a good word. That's never going to prove false. And God gives us that grace. Well, now to verses, the end of verse 5 and into verse 6. Of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. And so he is He's thankful here for the gospel spread in their midst, but the gospel spreading from them and through them as well. The, going, the gospel going to them, but also going to all the world and bringing forth fruit everywhere. And folks, that's still so. Jesus Christ is still building his church and the gates of hell are not, will not, never shall prevail against it. That's his truth. That's the reality of the situation. Um, There are so many evidences that Jesus is alive and victorious and at work all across the world. Um, I have a friend of mine who is the missions pastor, outreach pastor of his church. It's a pretty sizable church down in South Carolina. And he has had the privilege of just having his hands in so many nations and just seeing what God is doing. And in many cases, by just the most unique, you know, means of of bringing the gospel to those particular places. Um, He brought a missionary to us one time who reported about China. I think he went there for a few short years in China, saw 500 house churches uh, started in that few brief years, and then had nothing else to do, not because there weren't more people and more churches to be started and more people to be brought to Christ, but because those 500 churches were going at it so hard and so fast that they were seeing just thousands of people swept into the kingdom and many, many more of those house churches started. Um, He tells stories uh, about India where a man who just ran a very small scale um, minister's 
um, training institute, I guess, just a few people. But on a particular trip, he discovered that there were these rock quarries, these mines, and that there were children who were imprisoned there in those mines and had no way of escaping. And basically, they would just get hard labor out of them until they died. And so this man just said, this is not right. And he cried to God for grace and power to see that change. I don't know what the numbers are up to now. But the most amazing intervention of God took place. Many of those things were shut down. At one point, they were trying to house 3,000 orphans as a result of all of these coming out of these rock quarries. Um, All of a sudden, many, many uh, people were coming uh, to train for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. These children, you know, who had no hope but an early death were going off to the United States to study to be doctors and lawyers and all kinds of other things. And I mean, just the most incredible stories of how God was taking one man saying, I don't know what it is I can do, but whatever it is, I'm going to do it. And going at the gospel and then seeing such transformation. South Korea has seen so many uh, amazing things in the last decades. Africa. And, and so much of the, the evangelism that is going on in Africa is among Muslim people. And in many cases, the, the word of the missionary, the missionary gets there only to find out that this Muslim person had a dream and Jesus spoke to him in the dream and said, somebody's coming to see you and share the good news with you. Just the most incredible stories. Folks, around the world, God is still at work. And, and it's a shame sometimes uh, if we can't rejoice in that because it's not our particular team, you know, our particular brand of Christianity, or it's, it's not happening in front of us, so it's not happening at all. At all. No, it is happening. And, and as we are part of the church of Jesus Christ at large, that's who we are. And we should rejoice in everything he does to bring glory to his name and to bring uh, many who are lost into his kingdom. I want to read you something that I read many years ago. Um, the author's unknown. I, I think it was in high school when I read this. So I, I do mean many years ago. Um, but, but listen to this. And maybe you've heard it yourself. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who were among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures, Yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, yet Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music. Still Haydn, Handel, Bach, Beethoven, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in the hymns, symphonies, oratorios they composed in his praise. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter of Nazareth. But his unique contribution to the race of men 
is the salvation of the soul. Philosophy could not accomplish that, nor art, nor literature, nor music. Only Jesus can break the enslaving chains of sin and Satan. He alone can speak peace to the human heart, strengthen the weak, and give life to those who are spiritually dead. That's a good word, and that's perspective, and that's who Jesus is. Well, this Thanksgiving section ends with the last two verses, verse 7, verses 7 and 8. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And again, that leads you to believe he was the pastor. And verse 8, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So think about this. Let's just step back for a second and we'll move on to this final section. In this Thanksgiving section, he's not met these people yet. He's taking a report, you know, from Epaphras. But based on what he has heard, based on the fact that they are professing faith in Jesus Christ, he's using the judgment of charity to say, okay, if that's what you say, I'll take that as the word. And I will rejoice before God and I will give thanks And I think what is striking to me is that it's all on the basis of the gospel. He's not interested in asking all kinds of questions about, you know, bringing up like it is a a laundry list of of denominational distinctives or something like that. You know, and, and where do you sit here? What do you think about that? No, none of that. Because you see, at heart, what unites us and what divides us is always Jesus and the gospel. That's the main thing, and we must always keep the main thing, the main thing. No lesser things, certainly no distinctives of a particular brand of Christianity. In the end of the day, Jesus Christ exalted, and as he in the gospel is best known through this book best known through the word. And so we exalt him through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the word of God. Well, that brings us finally then to the section I've called goal. And I I use that word because this this section is a prayer. Uh, There are in these prison epistles four prayers, uh, one in Philippians, two in Ephesians, and this one here in Colossians. Uh, Sometimes if you want to do a really instructive Bible study, just look at those four prayers, at what specifically he prays for and the importance that it ought to have. Um, But I use that word goal because what he's going to pray for them here is exactly what he wants them to know and experience, what he desires to be the fruit of this letter to them. And so let me read... um, through the section, and then we'll come back and go through it a little more slowly. But beginning at verse 9, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints 
in the light. Now, I want you to notice right at the start, there's nothing circumstantial here. Not a thing. Nothing circumstantial. He doesn't pray about financial issues. He doesn't pray about health. He doesn't pray, and you might think this would definitely be something that would make the list, uh, about deliverance from persecution and affliction. But no, everything he prays for here is focused on their souls. It's focused on their hearts. I love the expression, the heart of the matter uh, is always the matter of the heart. And that's true. And so that's what he makes a beeline for. It's all spiritual in nature. And, and I think it's good for us to ask ourselves how our, our prayers compare to this. About do, do our prayers make a beeline for the things that we need the most? The grace, the peace, the love flowing in our hearts, the joy of the Lord that is our strength, the understanding of the word of God that is going to cause the devil's taunts and, and the um, anxious, depressing thoughts that he sends our way to just lose their power. Why? Because we have such a grip on who our Lord is and how much he is in control that we are not going to bow to that, you see. And so these are the most important things. And now I know our circumstances are pressing. They are in our face. Um, and, you know, life comes at us in chapters. You know, chapters when the kids are this high. Chapters when the kids are taller than we are. You know, and you feel like you're running a small business on the side just to keep all the demands of your household, you know, going. And, and there are other chapters, empty nesters, there are, and then the newlyweds, and then before wed, and, you know, there are all these different chapters of life, and each of them have particular circumstances with them. They can be very, very pressing, but I think the Apostle Paul shows us that in every case, the circumstances themselves are secondary in importance, and, and we can face those things, whatever they are, with trust and peace and confidence and joy if those spiritual realities are alive in our hearts and Jesus is alive in our heart. And we are, we are so busy seeing him that we don't have time, like Peter, to look down at the waves and begin to sink because our eyes are fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he pray? Verse 9, For this reason we also... Since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So, in other words, the Apostle Paul says, I, Jesus Christ, accomplished a finished work to meet every need of his people. I want you to know that inside out. Jesus looked us in the face as it were and said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It shall make you free. Paul in one of those other prayers in Ephesians says, I want you to know these things that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Peter says, I want you to be partakers of the divine nature. I mean, these are stunning things. But, and we wouldn't dare to say them if God hadn't said them. But he says them. And he says, I don't want you to know it in theory. I don't want it to be an article of doctrine. I want it to be your life. I want it to be the way you live and how you interact with me. 
And so the apostle says, I am praying that you'll get the whole package and that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But then verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, the first part of that, you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Now, that can be a stumbling block, and I'll tell you why. Let's just say you say, I want tomorrow, I'm going to start pleasing God. I am going to really walk worthy of my vocation, and I'm going to, I'm going to pray 30 minutes every morning. And the devil says, just 30? Shouldn't that have been 45? And if you do 45, he'll say, come on. You know, Luther prayed, you know, for three hours. And that, it can never quite be enough. Because if walking worthy is you fitting into a standard which somehow you are addressing, rather than saying, wait a second, the ground on which I start through the gospel of Jesus Christ is I am loved and valued by my Father. My sins are all forgiven, past, present, and future. And I have a standing in the grace of God. That's the reality for me. And so that's my starting point. So what is walking worthy? For one thing, it's walking transparently. It's walking before the Lord and, and saying, Lord, I'm confused about this. Or, Lord, I'm really struggling uh, to get victory here. I, I uh, you know, uh, my eating, my eating. It's emotional eating, you know. And so I just, I'm, I'm eating, you know, I'm not hungry, but I, I've just got to eat, you know. And I'm, I'm self-medicating with that or fill in the blank for you, you know, if, if yours is different. It can be a thousand things. And the devil wants us to make idols out of them, wants us to to look to them for comfort and encouragement rather than looking to Jesus. That's what he wants. And so walking worthy just begins with transparency. Lord, I want you. I want all of you. Every day, I want everything Jesus died to give me. I want to live the life that Jesus lived. And so, Lord, this day, I don't want to do anything you don't want me to do. So show me those things. I, don't, I do want to do everything you want me to do. Show me. Let me walk before you. Lord, I renounce my agenda. I want yours. I want yours. Give that to me. And so we just come transparently. Walking worthy is never going to be sinless. Never going to be sinless. But it can be in lockstep with the Lord Jesus Christ, where the blood of God's Son, according to 1 John, is constantly cleansing us from all sin, and where we are seeing ever-increasing victory over things that once had a grip and now have no power. Why? Because we're too busy loving and living for Jesus Christ. But then, if you go on here in verse 10... He says, being fruitful in every good work. So how do we do that? Well, I think for one thing, we don't define every good work outside of what the Lord has set before us. Do you remember the story of Mary and 
uh, the alabaster box of ointment. And she breaks the box and she, you know, anoints Jesus with it. And Jesus says that work that she did, wherever the gospel is preached, will be told as a memorial to her. So quite a testimony of her service. But if you look in the original language and how that is actually phrased, it says, and you remember, there was grumbling. Judas probably, because he had the money back, you know, but there was grumbling. Why, why was this not sold and, and given to the poor? And, and John comments, this he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag, you know. So, so we get the, the full beans spilled on that particular situation. But he says, leave her alone. She has done what she could. And the original expression of that is, What she could, she did. What she could, she did. Being fruitful in every good work in most cases is going to be right in front of you. It's going to be loving well and intentionally. The people that you interact with, that you work with, that you are are part of your family. It will be doing the obvious things. For instance, you know, in order to minister to all the families in this church and to minister to the children and to prepare a service, there's a lot of moving parts. Just step forward and say, where can I be used? Is there something I could do? Can I help? Can I fold bulletins? You know, whatever. Just right in front of you. That's the place where we begin to serve him in every good work. Now, it doesn't hurt to ask. doesn't hurt to say, Lord, do you want me on the mission field? You know, call me if that's what you want. Do you want something else? But, Lord, I'm going to serve you right where I have been planted. Uh, then at the end of verse, verse 10, it says, increasing in the knowledge of God. And um, I'd, I'd better get a move on here. I'm sorry, but... Um, Increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you know that the Bible says you can know God? Isn't that amazing? In the Old Testament, I love those passages where the Lord says, if you seek me, I will be found of you. You will find me. We have a New Testament version. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. The Lord wants you to know him. The Lord wants you in an intimate relationship with him. And so that is there if we will seek it. It is there for us to find. All right, verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Strengthened with spiritual might so that we would have patience and long-suffering, which would seem to imply some difficulty and affliction and trial, right? But with joy. We can go through those things with joy because we have been strengthened with might. And finally, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Um, What does the father want to give his only begotten son? Everything he promised them, everything he owns. And who are we? We are those united to him who have title to it all. 1 Corinthians teaches us all things are yours. All things are yours. If we are Christ, we, as it were, have it all. Because we have everything we will need for time and eternity. All that we could enjoy. So all of this 
is introductory. This is just the beginning of the epistle. Uh, and as Paul's prayer indicates, we're going to see glorious things about Jesus in this book. And therefore, glorious things about who we are and about what we have. But one of the greatest effects of the false teaching in Colossae, and this is very important, was simply to imply that Jesus Christ is not enough. That he is not enough. Now we'll see the various ways they worked it out and we'll see that because Paul will address each one. But they implied that Jesus Christ was not enough. Now folks, whether we realize it or not, we are answering that question. This question, is Jesus enough for me? We are answering that question every day and all day long. Is Jesus enough for me? It affects our relationships, it affects our motivation, it affects how we spend our money. It affects so many things. We are answering, is Jesus enough for me? Now the flat old bottom line is this. In truth, for every human need, Jesus Christ is enough. But am I living in that? Am I experiencing that? Am I enjoying that? Am I enjoying him? And so I think there's so much here in this book that'll send us in that direction so that we answer those questions daily in a way that unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ in a living relationship that is full of how he described the kingdom, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So folks, let's pray as we study this book. Let's dive deeply into it. Um, and let's pray that God will make Jesus everything in our hearts. Because as you see, he's the preeminent one. It's all about him. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're just so grateful today. There are so many of these glorious truths that we would not dare to, to say or to think applied to us if it weren't for the fact that you said it. You told us. Father, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things that you've prepared for those that love you. I used to think that was heaven, but then you go on to say, but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit who is bent on showing us everything Jesus is for us and did for us and all we have in him. So, Father, I ask you that by your grace, this week will be a, a week in which we all grow, a week in which, oh Lord, we taste and see that the Lord is good and enjoy him more and more. Lord, our trials are real, and so we call upon you to give us the grace that you said is sufficient that we need in this particular hour. Lord, I pray anyone struggling here, anyone in particular difficulty, Father, that they will seek you out and that you will give them the peace that passes understanding. They will cast their care on you because you care for them. And so, Father, I ask you for that grace. But if there are ways we as a church can help, we ask you to move them to seek that as well. So thank you for your goodness, Lord, in Jesus' name.